Open your Bibles this evening to James chapter 1, verse 16. So you decided not to do another side study. My, my, if I were a betting man, my money was on the side study. I'm not a betting man. It was, but I've been dying to get to this verse, so maybe why I had such a problem with it. Haven't you been dying to get to verse 16, too? Yep. It's always about the next verse. <laughs> There's something about being content with where you're at. And... <laughs> yeah, but what's that thing about uh, pressing on? Move, uh, that's true. What verse are we on? That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Neither did I. Verse 16, James chapter 1, verse 16. <laughs> Our side study tonight would have been the prodigal son story. Most people use it as an evangelistic tool. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying it's designed more to teach fellowship concepts than it is to teach salvation concepts. The concept begins with a son who is a part of a family and has every right as an adult in the family uh, who goes away and comes back. It's not of a person who is a sinner and repents and becomes a member of the family. That's a different story. So that's just a little bone I pick with that story. But um, it is a it is more of a symbol of, and metaphor, parable, if you will, for fellowship than it is uh, salvation. So I uh, I was going to go that route. So if you want to read that story, you can do that on your own time. We won't even charge you for that either, since it's your time. In fact, you may have to charge us for that one. I don't know. But um, I, I would recommend it just getting familiar with the story again. It's always a good story. and There's a lot of doctrine we can pull from it, um, especially about the, the rights of a son in that day and age as well as the adoption rights in Ephesians chapter 1, but we we have no purpose to go there at this point. And, uh, so I just figured, well, you can read on your own, and we'll get back into our course of study in the Epistle of James chapter 1, verse 16. We're dealing with that first line item. Um, James is dealing with one topic. Uh, that topic is true spirituality. His whole epistle is about what it is to be truly spiritual, and he's identifying that and the mechanics needed in order to be truly spiritual. But we, in chapter 1 so far, have only been dealing with that faith in action evidence. So James deals with true spirituality through four evidences. And that faith in action is the concept of by placing your dependency upon God and His Word, it produces action in your life. And last week, we talked about it's not our job to purify ourselves, it's God's job to purify us, and our, our job to allow Him to. By, doing, by depending upon Him, we allow Him to to purify us, and that's that faith in action. It comes from pisteos, which is a feminine noun, means complete dependency based on response. Just like you sit in a chair, you the relationship you have with that chair is the one in which you depend upon the chair to support you, and the chair produces the action to do that. If the chair doesn't produce the action to do that, your faith has no works. That's a little bit of a teaser. Okay, it's coming up in chapter two. <clears throat> so we need to be completely dependent and the based on response part of pisteos is because we respond through analysis and evaluation on the things we choose to depend upon. So whatever we depend upon is a response to data we've taken in, knowledge we've learned, doctrine we've uh, understood and been taught and studied. Um, our response to that through mental evaluation is going to create or not create a complete dependency upon that object or that data. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint we call it sight-based, and again, it's not just the eyesight and what we see, but it's what we perceive. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this world system. Again, the identification of the human world system. I was thinking about this today, and we could call it felt-based as well. Um, the concept that it's saddening, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic here, it is very much saddening to see a person on the street um, begging for money, whether they apparently need it or have all the money in the world. Um, but it's just saddening as a human to see a person in need. Um, human viewpoint would say, well, we need to act out and do something. Divine viewpoint may say the same thing, but that divine viewpoint, um, the only way divine viewpoint would say that would be in relationship to um, our Father, the one who has work for us and has given us a relationship to Him to accomplish his work, not human work. In other words, we may 
be led by the Holy Spirit to give a homeless man $20 or to give him food. We may also be led by the Holy Spirit not to. It just depends upon the relationship we have with God. Human, it would always be the human viewpoint solution to give that money um, or to not give that money because the person didn't earn it or didn't work or that kind of thing. So there's different, different viewpoints by which we perceive things and worldviews are developed out of our viewpoints. As believers, we should have a divine viewpoint, which is faith-based in nature. It's not based on what we perceive or feel of this world. Is based upon the spiritual truth doctrines of God's word system, what God's word says, and who God is. That dependency upon those two things is what we should be operating out of. Review of Tase Idios Epithumios, or the one's own sin or lust pattern. Scripture identifies three types of dominant lust patterns within humanity lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. The reason we're talking about this and reviewing this right now is because we're coming from. Um, couple of side studies in between our study of James 1, 14 and 15, which identified what we called the process of testation, uh, in which our lust pattern, or our dominant lust pattern, was the main player. Now, whether we had the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life as our dominant lust pattern, um, it is the, the thing by which we are seduced, the, the um, object which actually causes us to sin. So we need to understand what our dominant lust pattern is in order to combat sin, in order to understand how we operate, um, and also in order to understand how those around us are operating so that we can best serve them and minister to them. 1 John 2.16 is the verse from which we identify these three categories of sin and the lust patterns within humanity. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Lust of the flesh referring to sensuality or a satisfaction of the senses. Lust of the eyes, referring to the desire for material objects. Um, see, basically the concept that you see it, you want it. The pride of life is an attitude of priority over another, uh, whether externally um, shown through like boasting or self-promotion to others, um, or internally uh, held in a mindset or a viewpoint. Verse 14, uh, the first part of the process of testation says that, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. This verse taught us the following principles. Number one, the individual lust pattern you possess is the agent under which you will be tested. Number two, you will be dragged out by force under your lust pattern. And number three, you will be baited by Satan and company under your lust pattern. So that lust pattern that we talked about uh, previously, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust and the pride of life, if you remember from our study, that dominant lust pattern is the one that you will be targeted under. If it's pride, you'll be targeted towards pride. If it's satisfaction of the senses, you'll be targeted there. If it's desire for material objects and possession of those things and consumption of those things, then you'll be tempted towards that end. James 1.15, the very first part of that says that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The principles taught in this first part of verse 15 says that lust conceives when it takes the desired object and the person who desires the object and makes them one together. When you are being tested, and again, if your Bible says tempted, the word there is the same word we have for trial or try. Um, so we're calling it testing instead of tempting. But when you are tested, your lust conceives when it takes the object or the bait in the trap and you and puts you together. And that is what produces sin. Number two, conception by lust is only possible. This is huge, and this is something we need to understand. It's only possible when the individual consents through free will to be taken by lust to the desired object. Free will is the only thing stopping us from sin. It is the tool that God gave us to defeat sin. It's the tool that God gave us to choose right from wrong, to choose truth, to choose non-truth, and to discern and evaluate data that we receive on this world, whether it is human thought process or viewpoint or divine thought process or viewpoint. Conception by lust is only possible when the individual consents to be taken by lust to the desired object, when you give in to what you want. Number three, James 1.15 taught us also that when the individual's volition or free will is made one with the desired object, sin is brought forth. That is what we called the moment of conception, uh, maybe not the act of conception. The moment of conception, conception is the, the blending together of the free will of the human and the desired object. So that bait on the trap and the human, when those come together, that's the moment of conception. That moment of conception produces an act of conception, which then bears forth sin. But sin is first brought forth at the conceptive, conceptive moment, not through the act. 
The process of testation is summarized in the following way. Number one, the individual is dragged to bait, which has been laid in an appeal to his specific lust pattern. Number two, that individual either chooses to accept the bait, or which he desires, or to reject it. If he rejects the bait, the test has been successfully overcome, and the work of Satan and company has been momentarily thwarted. If he rejects the bait, he remains in fellowship with God and under the control and teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if he rejects the bait, having utilized dependency upon doctrine found in God's word, he produces what God calls a good work, one which has natural inherent value, and is a good work of righteousness, which is a part of his future stewardship evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. Basically, what we do on earth is evaluated, whether it was nat had natural value or not. That with natural value remains after it goes through fire. That which did not yeah, is burnt up as wood, hay, and stubble was in the, first, in the fire in the town of Corinth. If the individual accepts the bait, his lust takes him and the bait and makes them one together. The result of their cohabitation or oneness is the production of sin by the agent of, agent of their lust, having been empowered by the individual's volitional capability. Remember, your volition is what allows your lust pattern to cohabit you and the object you desire in produce sin. If he accepts the bait, lust is that agent which brings sin into existence through conception. Sin is in a completed state at the moment of conception. Sin being in a completed state produces spiritual death. That is what led us on to our tangent in our side studies about, well, if we've got spiritual death in our life again now, do we need to re-accept Christ as our Savior or not? The doctrine of positional truth identifies that once we are saved, our sin is charged to Christ. And so rather than producing uh, a dead spirit within us, it produces spiritual death in operation of our fellowship relationship. So it doesn't kill our spirit, it just destroys our spiritual operation. That's the concept that we uh, discussed the last couple weeks through positional truth um, doctrine. Understand that we are positionally in Christ and therefore our sin is charged to him, his righteousness imputed to us. And through fellowship, understand that we need to confess sins and restore ourselves to a proper relationship with God when sin is understood in our life. Any questions on the review? We have plenty of time tonight, so if you have questions or need clarification or anything, uh, feel free. Okay, then tonight we get to defeating the test, part one. James's transition, James transitions of verse 16 from identifying the process of testation to identifying the mechanics necessary in order to defeat testation in the life of the believer. Obviously, we've already talked about volition being a major player and being the actual only way that we can <laughs> uh, submit and um, consent to sin and to the bait. So we can already identify through verses 14 and 15 that if we choose not to take the bait or let our lust pattern take us um, to the bait, then we won't sin. So that's one of the processes we've already identified. Um, there are two other basic parts to this process, and verse 16 is the first of these two basic parts. Verse 16 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Little tiny verse. Seven words. We'll deal with two of them tonight. I like when you all give me funny looks. <laughs> May planasthe. James' statement to the scattered believing Jews reveals the simplicity lying inherently within the process of defeating the test. This process to defeat the test is simple. God's word, his commands are simple when we understand them. Understanding them is a little bit more difficult for us for a number of reasons. Human viewpoint, deception, get in the way, uh, lack of operating in fellowship, which will remind me to accomplish something on our own study tonight. Um, lack of restoration of fellowship through confession of sin will not allow us to understand what Scripture says. And so at this point, uh, let's take 30 seconds and reevaluate ourselves individually uh, through your priesthood with God, um, not with one another, but to uh, confess any known sin that you may have in your life with God, or if you are just choosing not to believe God for something or something, or if you're in fellowship, whatever you got to do. If you're out of fellowship, um, let me encourage you to confess any sin and get back in fellowship for the next 30 seconds, and I'll uh, open us with prayer as we continue on our way through defeating the test. Okay, so take 30 seconds for yourself.
Father, thank you that we can trust you, that even if we may not know what sin we need to confess or may not know whether we are in or out of fellowship, that we can trust that you do and that you will do the work necessary to restore us to you through your loving kindness. Father, thank you for your divine viewpoint and doctrine and your word and for the study before us tonight. Help us to understand the concepts, teach us through your Holy Spirit, that we could know and understand and apply these things to our life through dependence upon them at the end of the night. Thank you for making these things so simple. May we not complicate them by choosing to not desire them and to not give in to you know, what you've commanded and what you've taught through our free will, but may we submit ourselves to you, depend upon you, and let you dictate and guide what we affirm and agree with in our belief system. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. James begins his statement to the diaspora, who again are the believing Jews that were per they were persecuted, and so they were scattered, and that word diaspora means the scattered ones. Now, he begins his statement, statement with me planaste. Me planaste is an emphatic passive imperative statement. The emphasis in James's tone is identified in his use of me to negate or counteract planaste. Fix some of the font real quick. The use of may as opposed to u implies the ceasing of an action which has been occurring. This is a prohibition, in other words, instead of just a don't do this. This is a stop doing this. Um, it's something that says this is already going. You need to stop doing this. If Paul had used u, it would have not been a prohibition. It would have been um, more of a realized statement of him saying, um, not doing this, we should do something else, or that kind of a thing. But because he chose to use may, which is actually an abnormal choice here, um, but it actually is pretty much always used with planoste, because he chose to use may, he's actually identifying through its use that there's an action that's occurring, this deception is occurring, and they need to stop letting it occur. Ooh would not have carried that thought forward, and the reason I bring those two up is so you can see the contrast between the choice of, um, of the brother of Jesus as he writes this book. Uh, just a disclaimer, for some reason in my head, Paul has been coming up all the time. Did I say Paul? Okay. I don't know if I said it or not. I thought it at one point, and I said James right after that point. But if I say Paul, just translate it as James. I don't know why Paul is popping up in my head or what the deal is, but that's fine. Uh, maybe we should be studying some of the Pauline epistles rather than the book of James. But... I was like, I used to Paul. <laughs> yeah, so if I say Paul, it's James. I had the same trouble. I almost typed Paul a number of times when I was typing this up. But... Um, Note that the use of may versus u implies the prohibition to stop doing something that is going on or has occurred, um, has been occurring. There we go. Through the use of may, James expresses a prohibition to see something which has previously and repetitively occurred. If it thus establishes the foundation for a new protocol of operation to be put into practice. In other words, you are doing this. Stop that and start doing this. Change your protocol, change your behavior. Effectively, James is clearly and emphatically proclaiming stop through his use of may in this construct. Uh, may is a very emphatic um, interjection, I guess, if you will. It's actually an adverbial, part or adverbial uh, particle in this usage. But it's, it's not just like, don't do this. It's like, stop this. It's, it's, it's got a huge emphasis to it. And hopefully, by the end of the night, you'll see uh, kind of some of the harmonies that we get with planoste as well. Planoste is a present passive imperative verb. It comes from planao, which means to lead astray or to deceive. Um, that is actually a typo. It, it's either to, it means either to cause to lead astray or to cause to deceive. The difference being is that you're not, you're not leading astray directly. It's a little more indirect. You're causing someone to be led astray. So you're not, leading them astray, you're causing them to be led astray, or causing them to be deceived. Um, if I were to teach something that I knew was wrong to you guys, and you guys just accepted it without challenging it, I would cause you to be deceived, versus telling you straight up in your, to your face, uh, knowing something was wrong, that this is what it is, and trying to purposely de deceive you. You see, there's a slight difference, and I'm not really getting the nuance out there, I guess. But there's a cause to the being led astray, or cause to this to the deception. This planao word is to cause to lead astray, or to cause to deceive. Make sense? Okay. We'll we'll keep going with it. It's going to be a little more confusing, and hopefully we'll wrap it in together. 
Um, so this word planao, do you have a question? No, I was just thinking so like David rises a bit, right? So he didn't kill him, he didn't stab him, but he caused him to be killed. Precisely. He wasn't the direct agent, but he was Ultimately. the direct responsible party. He's the one that got to the party. Yeah. And you can see that, and probably should highlight this, I guess, right now. But in verses fourteen and fifteen, what is the agent that this that causes sin in our life? The agent's the lust pattern. That's the one that we would say leads us astray. Our lust pattern leads us astray. But what causes us to be led astray is the temptation that leads us to our lust with our lust pattern to be led astray. So that's the great example, Jamin. I appreciate the help with David and Uriah. Uh, David was not the killer of Uriah, but he was the responsible party for Uriah's death. So he caused him to be killed, but he did not kill him. Planao carries with it the idea of causing to lead astray another individual or causing to deceive another individual. Its use in its passive form identifies the subject who are here the members of the diaspora, um, and we transitively apply that to believers since we are also brothers of James and sisters, are acted upon by an outside force to be caused to be led astray or to be caused to be deceived. So there's an outside force that's causing the deception, causing the being led astray. Um, that is applied to believers. I'm going to use the diaspora throughout the rest of tonight um, until we get to the summaries. So just take diaspora out, put believer in there. The members of the diaspora are the recipients of the action which is accomplished by an outside force. They're the subject because it's passive, they receive the action. So they're not leading astray, they're being led astray. They're not deceiving, they're being deceived. With May preceding Planoste, James is emphatically identifying that the diaspora are to stop being caused to be deceived by an outside force. How can you stop it if it's an outside force that's doing it? Okay. This harmonizes with the previous passages in verses 14 to 15 where James taught about the process of testation. We just summarized that in our review. Remember, they understand that May brought in, through James's application of the adverbial negative, which was May, to Planoste, was that the deception of the diaspora was already and repetitively occurring. It said that May versus U was an, a prohibition of something that has been occurring and needs to stop. This is a repetition. We'll see through the present tense here that is used um, that it's a continuous repetition of events. This is emphasized as well through the use of the present tense form of planao. Here we go. Tense again is used to identify type of action in Koine Greek rather than the time. We talk about present tense like that's what's going on right now. Um, present tense in Greek is a duration or a linear action. That's why we show it on a graph with like a timeline and then a dot starting the action and a line continuing the action on. So don't think of it as a present thing. Think of it as a continual or a linear or durative action. Um, with planoste in the present tense, it changes the verb from being a, at some point in the future or being a point in time or multiple points in time to continually being caused to be deceived. Before we go any farther, let me, inter let, let me interject here and fix my bothersome syntax issues. This concept of continually being caused to be deceived. Notice it's not continually deceived. Continually caused to be deceived. There's a state of being here that, is, that the diaspora is identifying as being, identified as being in existence. They're in a continual state of being deceived. What that means to us is that back in verses 14 and 15 that they were just submitting to the testation that was going on. That they were being deceived through that process of testation and sinning. There wasn't a fight to it. There wasn't a, we're going to stop this kind of mindset. It was a mindset that was overcome easily by the lust pattern. So it wasn't something they were dealing with and fighting. We'll, we'll get to that in this next slide a little bit too. But I want you to understand that there's kind of this overall bubble that we're talking about here um, that is going on, that they are being deceived and they're to stop being deceived. Now, we just went through the present tense uh, understanding and I hated to do that but it was necessary because we need to help you understand tonight that we're not talking about a durative or linear present tense okay so all the stuff I just told you doesn't apply tonight but we needed to know that part because remember I said it's kind of a larger bubble of a, a, a continuous thing that's happening but it's not just one continuous process of testing or one continuous moment of testation. 
it's a continuous repetition of those moments. That's why we have on the bottom what we call an iterative present tense, which identifies that a continuous action repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. Okay, it doesn't have to be start, stop, like a loop kind of thing, like we would with our, our music tracks, but it may be start, wait two minutes, start, stop, start again, um, that kind of a thing. So we've got this iterative present tense used here to identify this repetition within this continuous process of being deceived. So he's, James has commanded them to stop being continually deceived repetition time after time after time. So there's an ultimate continuous, or ultimate continuous deception that is made up of these repetitions things. This is very similar to the aorist tense would do. In fact, if we had a subjunctive mood, we would have had the aorist instead. Because we have an imperative, or an, yeah, an imperative mood, which we're going to get to, this had to be employed here for syntax and grammar. But the amazing thing is that it's showing that planos they here is identifying that they're continually caused by these repetitious moments to be deceived. So zoom out to that first part and the overall picture here. We're not looking at the little repetitious moment, this moment and this moment, this moment. We're talking that they are continually being deceived. And how is that happening? Through these moment by moment kind of repetitious events. What that tells us is that they're not fighting the, the process of testation, the lust battle that we, we fight and struggle with, they're not fighting that for whatever reason. Um, and, and here we go with, with the commentary on it. The harmony of James's words are masterfully woven to create the understanding that time and time again, the diaspora are being deceived, even at the point in which James was writing these words. They were in a continual state of being repetitively deceived by an outside force. And the process was not broken. It was continual process of repetitious deceit. So like when you want to cheat on you can try to cheat on me. It's not even a matter of I'm being fooled. It wasn't like you're being fooled the one time, the first time cheating on you It wasn't even yeah. To a degree, yes. But the concept of oh I sinned or oh I'm oh that's I shouldn't go for that. Like the struggle that we kinda of face with it, according to this that's not even going on. It's just, they're being deceived. Now, that isn't to say that they didn't know that what they were doing is wrong. They very well may have. They may not have the mechanics. It may be that Paul is writing, or James is writing this epistle to tell them, hey, this is what's going on. Stop this and start doing this. You're being deceived here through these repetitious moments of um, deception and seduction towards sin. So it, it's kind of, if to put into Romans 12, 1 terms, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, do not be conformed to this world. When we're born, until we accept Christ, we have no choice but to be conformed to this world. We are conformed to this world through repetitious teachings, whether it's actions, whether it's um, human viewpoint propaganda, um, and that's a loaded word, human viewpoint teaching, I guess. Uh, we call it propaganda because it, it's contrary to God's word, antithetical to it, his nature as well. So through, through that time until we accept Christ, we are subject only to that conformation to the world. And yes, I made that word up. It doesn't exist, but it's perfect. Conformation, not confirmation, conformation, being conformed, the process of being conformed. It should be a word. So while we're being conformed to the world through, while, while it's one continual process, it's a repetition of moments. It's the same thing we have here is stop being deceived through this process. Now, how do we, how do we change in Romans 12.1 from being conformed to being transformed? First, we have to accept Christ. Once that's done, we break the process of the continual thing, and now it's an on-off concept. We now are dealing with the repetitious moments versus the continual progression of this conformation. So what's going on in James is this continual progression of deception. They're continually being deceived through these repetitious moments, it's not stopped. It's not broken. The pattern's not, not stopped. It, it's kind of an advanced Greek thing to understand that concept, and I think we're getting it. Um, it's not taught in most of your lower grammars, and that's actually do a little work to get the name of it because I forgot what the name was. But the, 
to have an action that is kind of your zoomed out abstract concept that is made up of a bunch of repetitious moments in which you are being um, deceived and to then say that those two things are now one thing because they one comprises the other, I guess, if you will. With, with that understanding, we can get this concept that James is saying, you guys are continuously being deceived through these repetitious moments. You need to stop that. So he's not saying stop the repetitious moments. He's saying stop being continually deceived through them. Does that make sense? Okay. In the previous two verses, verses 14 and 15, James identifies the process of how the diaspora was being deceived. But now he says, through me planaste, using the imperative mood, oh, he writes me planaste, sorry, I misread that. And in doing so, he expresses a command. Mood in Koine Greek is, in, is um, used to establish the atmosphere, or the tone, if you will, of an action or state of being. And the action here is planaste, so James with it being the imperative mood, it's identifying that planaste is a command. Now, with may in front of it, the command is may planaste. Stop being continually um, deceived through these repetitious moments. So that's a command that he is now giving them. Uh, remember I said earlier that if we had the subjunctive, we would have had the aorist before, and it would have the same kind of repetitious concept, but not as a continual progression throughout your life. Um, here we have the imperative, and it's necessary syntactically. So with me planaste, when planaste and me are coupled together um, and the imperative mood is used, it identifies a command to stop being in a continual state of being repeti repetitively deceived. Okay, so stop that, rep that progression, that continual progression through these repetitious moments of being deceived. Then when we place this construct back into the context of verses 14 and 15, the understanding arises that through the process of testation, when it is carried out from start to finish, seduction of the individual produces the individual to be deceived. This is huge um, because it, it teaches us that it's not about the test that we're facing or the bait on the trap or even us succumbing to that or choosing that. And succumbing is kind of a, the word we use, but really we're choosing it. It's not about that act. It's not about the sin. It's not about, and, and Satan Company isn't trying just to get us to sin here. They're deceiving us about what is right, about what is good. And that's the end game here. According to James, the diaspora and all believers are to stop being in that continual state of being repetitively deceived by an outside force. Notice the command is not merely to stop being deceived in and out of a given moment, but rather the command is to stop being, stop being in a continual state of being deceived through repetitious seductions. So again, in our context, the lust pattern is what draws us to the bait on the trap. That's that seduction concept that James uses uh, when he uses a whole list of reproductive metaphors to carry out this understanding of, of what actually happens when we sin. So rather than the command to stop sinning when you're faced with temptation or testation, the command is to stop the continual progression of this. James goes right to the heart here. He says, stop this whole progression. Just stop it all. Don't worry about one thing. Don't worry about stopping one thing. Stop all of it right now. Just stop. Stop being in a continual state of being deceived through repetitious seductions. So what it, what he does is he's emphasizing the whole process of testation being that... Um, being that deceptive force that will continually deceive us, in other words. So it, the emphasis that he's placing is on the resistance to the process of testation as a whole, not just the case-by-case -case level or the moment-in-time level. So it's again, we're zoomed out here. We're talking about the continual progression of all of it. You guys starting to see that picture? Am I beating the dead horse yet? Okay. You can say yes. I'll still beat it. <laughs> in other words, James is identifying that the diaspora are not, as of this writing, fighting the process of testation in their life. They're not fighting that state of being deceived through, this, through those repetitious moments. It is entirely possible that until this epistle that they lacked the understanding necessary to combat this process successfully. It's entirely possible. Whether that's true or not is all speculative. 
but it is entirely possible and it may be that James is reminding them but it doesn't appear so because he could have very well said remember this isn't the case you're, you're doing this and this isn't the case he is giving them new protocol new commands but the paradigm that James's words produce is that they were not even of the mindset of fighting the process they were they were ignorant that it was occurring they were in a continual state of being repetitiously seduced into deception we do this at times uh, we hopefully shouldn't ever do it and we end up doing it but you can go a week without focusing on your relationship with God and you're in that that state of that continual progression is now started the week or that point when you sin and you've lost fellowship with God that begins the progression but and when you operate through these various testations and you sin and you sin and you sin you're in an ultimate sin already because you're out of fellowship but you're sinning and sinning and sinning and then at the end of the week if you choose not to do anything about your state of being out of fellowship, it goes on for another week and another week. You've continued this progression until, as a believer, you confess it. That breaks the progression. So he's setting out this concept that they're supposed to break this uh, progression in their life. And it'll start, it'll stop, but they're supposed to break it. Rather than fighting the state, they had willingly given themselves over to the process of testation and thus become its victim. And again, this is a, all from the iterative uh, present tense and the use of may, that they weren't even of the mindset of fighting their state of being continually deceived. They were ignorant of it, maybe. They were rebellious to it. Probably not. It seems more likely they were ignorant of it. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow. Iterative is a math term as well. And so I'm trying to think of the analogy to be had between math because that's what I so an iterative, iterative solution of math, you have to take the answer and plug it back in at the beginning and keep going, going, right, going around and around until hopefully, sometimes it goes wacky, but sometimes it'll eventually, the number you pull out and stick back in at the front of the equation will eventually start to be the same number and you converge to a solution. And so those are always not very fun because you have to solve the same problem many times and run through it, but if you use computers, it makes it easier. <laughs> um, and so I was trying to think of the, an iterative math solution compared to an iterative that if there was a correlation, but I, 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 I wasn't seeing a direct analogy. Here's your here's your connection. This is actually pretty neat. Um, with what you define the iterative math equation, mm -hmm. and you take the end number and you put it back in and run it through again, right? Yeah. And then hopefully you get to the point where you've got the same number and you've got your final answer, right? <coughs> That's the process in a nutshell. <coughs> That's what they're supposed to stop doing is stop, not stop doing the equation, yeah. but they're supposed to basically, I guess, start doing the equation, if you will. Yeah. Take take this process, stop this the deception that's going on. Do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again, until they get to the point where their spiritual maturity is now growing and building. Right. This is where we lose it, right? We lose it because we don't stop the progression. We, we fight it and we struggle it. And what do we struggle with? We struggle with sin specifically. But what, we're, what we haven't, I haven't said yet, and maybe you've picked up on is that sin isn't the problem here. Deception is the focus. Deception's the end game. The purpose of testation is not to get us to sin. It's to deceive us. James is telling us, so it's your iterative, just to kind of go up, it gave me kind of chills because I saw how it worked because what, what James is telling us is to stop being in this continual state of, of being repetitiously deceived through this process of testation and to start plugging in that number that the protocol is giving them to you do this and you do it and you do it and hopefully you do it consistently enough and you've done it properly enough that it's now now starts to become where it's not an issue that's that's divine cosmos the god's world system as best as it could be employed is for us to be in that process we are no longer iteratively sinning Giving in, you're letting yourself be deceived more. Iteratively, you'll, you'll converge to it. It's harder, the farther and farther away from your like. The longer you don't have a quiet time, the harder it is to start again. You develop a habit either way. The theological term is snowball. <laughs> it snowballs. Um, actually, the theological term is wheel tracks of righteousness. Um, it's concept that when you run the same path, you create wheel tracks. And when you take a new path, you create another wheel track. But the path of least resistance is what your brain follows. 
So if you don't stop the process and start a new wheel track and run that same wheel track, your brain actually builds bridges and, and there's a whole study and actually we're going to get to this next week, I think, if I uh, understand where we're going properly. Um, but it builds this process that now instead of you having to analyze and evaluate something about the situation, you just get the situation and just go and it just becomes reflexive. That's actually how we're supposed to have the attitude of Christ. In Philippians where it says have, um, have, the attitude, have, have the same attitude that Christ did who denied himself. That's not the first. You know what I'm talking about. Right, who although he existed in the form of God, chose not to be, chose equality with God, something not to be held on to, but laid aside his privileges and rights as God and um, came to earth and was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. It's again, it's a huge mis paraphrase there, but you all know the verse I'm talking about. Um, I don't know why we're talking about it. Paul. Yeah, yeah Paul's there. Oh, it's it's a reflexive thing, yeah. Yeah, and it's Jesus have that reflexive thing. There's a sermon on the church website that, that talks about that. Some smart aleck put it up there. So James is telling them to stop it. I'm the smart aleck that put it up there. I'm the smart aleck that spoke it too. But James is telling them to stop, stop this process. Start fighting it. Start plugging in the proper protocols. The little ad that we do. Yeah. This. This can be brought to you by Todd's sermons along the church website. Yeah. But you've used the question before. Yeah. No one's used that yet. No. We just use Facebook instead. You don't have to use it. It's all right. It's there if it need be. I'll try to think of a question and use it. It's there if need be. I know. Start start fighting the process, and in doing so, stop the continual state of being repetitiously deceived. So that's what James is trying to get across here to them. Is when he says, "Do not be deceived," it's actually stop being in a continual state of being repetitiously deceived or repetitiously being deceived. You can interchange those beings if you want. Okay, so the mechanics given to the diaspora for defeating the process of testation begins with the following realizations. Number one, the process of testation results in deception. Sin is the byproduct of it, but the process of testation results in deception. Number two, deception is the end game of the process of testation, and as such, it is the purposed result of Satan and company. Their job is not just to get us to sin. They're not trying to get us just to sin. Satan is, has said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will establish my throne. I will make my own world system, and I will rule it. What he has to do is disrupt God's world system, deceive, and reprogram. The green initiative is hand-given from him, in my opinion. It's perfect for creating a human world system that Satan can take over and rule. It's fear-based, it's felt-based, it's completely and utterly contrary to the Word of God. Not that we're not supposed to be good stewards with what He has given us. That's not what I'm saying. That's different than the green movement. But the process of testation, the purpose of that process is not to get us to sin. That's the symptom of the process. We sin because of the process. The purpose is to deceive us from God's truth to non-truth, to what Satan and company are proffering as their solution to God's judgment of them in eternity for hell. In hell for eternity. Number three, the process of testation is Satan and company's plan to deceive believers from truth. The goal is not to cause believers to sin, but rather to deceive them from truth through seduction. I can't emphasize that enough. Sin is a byproduct, but the goal is deception. And what do we end up doing? This is brilliant. We end up struggling with the sin, which we should get rid of in our life and allow God to get rid of it in our life. But we end up focusing on, oh, I did this, I did that. And what do we ignore? The why. Why did I choose this over that? Why did I choose what God says is not right for something I liked? What did we change? What? How are we deceived? We need to focus not on us having sinned so much, while we do need to restore fellowship because of our sin, we need to focus on why did we, what did we believe instead of God? 
It may be, I believe that I can do my own thing. It may be, I believe that will be more satisfactory than what God has prescribed. But we have changed a belief that allows us then, and this occurs at the moment of conception, that, that consent that we give is us giving in and saying that's better than what God has prescribed. It's not going to be a conscious stream of thought, but when it starts to become that, we start building spiritually. Because then we start realizing, okay, God says this, he's got a reason, it's better, he says this is the plan, but I want this. Okay, well, it's me versus God, who knows best? When we get to that point of asking who knows best, that's right where we need to be. But we need to answer it, God knows best. The instant we choose to answer it, I know best, bam, we've committed, we're going for it. That is the moment of um, conception, that's when sin is brought forth in its entirety, and that is the goal. Not for sin, but for the deception that we know best or that that object or that thing is better than what God has provided. Sin is the symptom and the byproduct of deception. We sin because we allow ourselves to be deceived. We sin because we like what's on the trap. But the sin that, we, that is accomplished in our life is the byproduct of deception. We have to be deceived or give in to deception. And sometimes knowingly, most of the time unknowingly, hopefully. But when we knowingly give in, now we have to really deal with ourselves in our relationship with God. We have to make the same decision we ha we have to confess, whether we know it or not. Question, Rowan? I was just going to say, deception is like, there's a good word for it. Because like I know in my own life, you have to like, I have to like almost like convince myself again of the truth. Like that sounds kind of bad, but once you're deceived, you like think you're actually doing the right thing. But when when you're sinning, you you know you're obviously not. And I just specifically for me, it's fear. Like I'm scared of the outcome of whatever. So I'm like I don't trust God, and that's like deception. Satan's playing us. It's word is what it comes down to. And we get focused on the action we committed and not why we committed it. Every action we have is the result of a belief we possess. Every single one. Even if you try to prove that statement wrong, it's because you believe you can. I know that from personal experience. The only reason we try to prove that statement wrong is because we believe that we can. It's a challenge. We think we can do it. We believe in it. And so we depend upon the fact that we have such great prowess or whatever it is that we can try it. And we will fail because you cannot defeat that statement. It is truth. And Robin, you're right. Deception is a great word for it. That's the word that God chose. <laughs> you can't get better than that. <laughs> I agree. The only effective way to stop being deceived is to begin to fight the process of testation, one testation at a time. Okay, so we said there's a continual progression that we're dealing with, that iterative present. But what causes the continual progression? The repetitious moments. You stop at repetitious moments, that continual progression stops. So we fight the battle in the repetitious moments. But are we continually progressing towards righteousness? Or are we continually progressing through deception in sin? That's what we need to deal with. We need to stop in the moment. Doing so, when we fight the process of, uh, process of testation, stops the process of being in a continual state of repetitively being deceived. And here's the trick. It begins to allow the believer some foothold in retaining truth in their operational framework. Operational framework is a summary of what the Bible talks about when it uses the word heart. Um, in order to properly understand that concept of operational framework or the things that we operate from, the beliefs we operate from, we have to understand the concept of the heart of man according to Scripture. That's the plan for next session, the heart of man. Um, so we'll, we'll go through and explore that and understand a little bit more about the operational framework of humanity. It is a side study, but it's a necessary side study. So far, I think they all have been necessary. Usually we don't call them side studies if they're not necessary. We'll call them rabbit trails. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, would you do that if you weren't on a side study? Never. <laughs> okay, cool. So, for now, beloved brethren and sistren, <laughs> I love making up words. 
Beloved brethren and sisters, stop being in a continual state of repetitively being deceived. What that's talking about is that stop not confessing your sin. If you know you're out of fellowship, <coughs> confess your sin, get back in fellowship. When you sin, do it again. Start the process, start the wheelchair. Remember, sin is a byproduct of deception. Accomplishing sin is not the focus of the process of testation. Deceiving the believer from truth is. That's the end game of Satan and company. Deception. Change what we believe and how we operate. Volition must consent for the process of testation to succeed. You can avoid this, the success of this process by choosing not to allow yourself to go down the road. Simply put, believe that God knows best. You actually depend upon that, it'll work. Number four, plain and simple, stop being deceived. Recognize that when you're being tempted or being tested, you're actually being deceived. And that's the end game. You can realize that. No man wants to be a fool because we all know that Mr. T pities the fool. So stop being deceived. Make the choice. This is too young and crowded for that? No way. I mean, thank you. I had to look it up after somebody said something. <laughs> <laughs> he became a Christian. Did he? And he yeah. stopped wearing all of the swing because he felt like it was wrong. <laughs> he was wearing that much gold and jewelry when they were about poor people. And so he kind of reformed and huh. became a decent guy. Yeah. Well, he really did pity 